into the passage that we're going to go over today and just quickly do a review over this. This is Jesus in Nazareth, his hometown, um, at a synagogue on the Sabbath, teaching. And Luke 4, 17 starts, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. He unrolled the scroll and found, um, found where, where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. To, to, that good news is the gospel. When you hear that word gospel, it just means good news. It's the same Greek word we use. Good news, gospel, to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. I was sent for the gospel message. And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the gospel. It's why I'm here. And Jesus reads this portion of scripture, verse 20, and he rolled, it, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And everyone in the synagogue was wondering what he was going to do next. All the eyes... Or, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, I am the good news. I am what this is talking about. And this is a, this is a crazy, bold claim. 22, and he and all spoke well of him and marveled at, at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What, have, what we have heard you did in, at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Back up this claim. This is a bold claim. Back up this claim. Do a miracle. Look, Jesus' miracles testified to the truthfulness of his message. But this crowd has heard about his miracles. They knew about his power, and yet they still didn't believe. At this point, though, in Luke, he hasn't recorded one miracle yet. I mean, he's recorded miracles, but not one that Jesus has done personally. He's given us plenty of evidence and, and, and testimony to who Jesus was, Angelic testimony, he will be called the son of the most high. An angel says human testimony, Simeon and John the Baptist. Trinitarian testimony, Jesus' baptism, Jesus was baptized. The spirit descended like a dove on him. Father's voice said, this is my son who I am well pleased. Birthright testimony, a genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God. Battle testimony, Jesus defeats Satan in the wilderness. We learn through all this that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. But even with these testimonies, up to this point in Luke, Luke has really emphasized Jesus' humanity. The birth of Jesus, although a miraculous birth, was a human birth. Jesus' childhood... In Luke 2, 27, says this, And he, this is Simeon, a righteous, devoted man that was promised to see the Messiah uh, before he died, came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought him in, the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he 
Listen to this. He, Simeon, took him in his arms. This is the creator of the universe. And Simeon held him in his arms. He was a son to human parents, Luke 2, 51. And he went down with them, his parents, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. I mean, that's amazing. If you, have, if, you have, if you struggle with submissiveness, here's Jesus submissive to human parents. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, just like a human, and in favor with God and man. Even in his temptation, his humanity was tempted, not his divinity. He was, he was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. And this all leads to an extremely important question, and possibly the most important question you can ask, at least one of them. If Jesus was human, how do we know we can trust his claims? I mean, he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's a crazy claim. Can we trust Jesus's words? And Luke's going to answer this. Look at Luke 4, 31, verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. His word, logos, is the word logos. We know that word uh, from First John, or uh, John 1, I should say. Uh, logos, his logos, his word, this Greek logos, possessed authority. I want to quickly remember why Luke wrote this book. You don't have to turn there, but Luke 1, 3 says this. He's writing to, to this, this man named Theophilus, and he says this about what he's writing, Luke and Acts. Uh, it seemed good to me, this is Luke, also having followed all these things about Jesus, all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty Concerning the things you have been taught. That word things in Greek is actually the word logos. It can be translated things, but it could be translated uh, that you may have certainty, certainty concerning the words you have been taught. The words you have been taught. Words about Jesus, of course, as the stories went out throughout um, the area. But also Jesus' words themselves. Luke is going to answer in this passage the question, are Jesus' words, logos, worth hearing about? Are Jesus' words worth writing about? Why don't you look back at chapter 4, verse 32 now. And they, this is the crowd at Capernaum in the synagogue, and they were astonished at his teaching for his words his, her, for his word, Lagos, possessed authority. The scribes and the, and the Jewish leaders didn't teach this way. Right? You know what? No one teaches this way. If people taught this way, you would think they're, they're, they're crazy. One commentator said this, The Jewish teachers whom the people were used to hearing usually quoted from well-known rabbis or gave the opinions of predecessors in order to give their words more authority. They would quote 
people that were authoritative so that their words would have more authority. That's exactly what we do when you're in, in high school or college. Or you write a, a paper, you quote people in the paper. You quote authorities on the subject at hand. If you read a, a book or an article, that especially if it's teaching something, that book or article is going to quote authoritative people, authoritative figures. If I got up here this morning to do a speech on, on healthy living, I'd probably quote a physical therapist, an RN, a nutritionist, maybe a medical doctor, a scientist. I would quote authorities to give my speech more authority. And some of these people that I just mentioned would have more authority than others, depending on their position or degree. But Jesus just spoke as if he had ultimate authority. And people were amazed. He spoke as if the words coming from his mouth were scripture. I'll give you an example. Don't turn there, but Matthew 5.38 says this. You have heard that it was said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is scripture. He's quoting scripture. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, wow. This is on par with scripture. And not just any scripture. This particular phrase, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, is repeated three times in scripture. Exodus 21, 24, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. Leviticus 24.20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, uh, tooth for tooth. Deuteronomy 19.21, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Jesus is saying here, I, I know scripture says this, but I say to you, whoa. And I want to be clear on this. Jesus is not contradicting scripture here. He's clarifying scripture. This is what this scripture means. But the amazing thing is, according to Jesus, his words, his clarification, holds the same authority as scripture. And people were amazed and astonished at his teaching. Mark 1, 22, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Mark 1, 27, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, who is this? A teaching with authority. Mark 10, 24. And the disciples were amazed at his word. Mark eleven eighteen, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Matthew seven twenty eight. And when Jesus finished uh, these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Well, why were they astonished? Well, 29. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew twenty-two thirty-three. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. John seven fifteen. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning? When he has never studied, this guy has no degree, he has no PhD, he's a carpenter's son. How can he speak with such authority? Who gave him this authority? Even the learned people asked, Luke 21, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, 
tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who it is that gave you this authority. Look, there's nothing wrong with appealing to authorities. In seminary and college, we're required to quote authorities on the subject that we're, we're writing about. There's nothing wrong with degrees and, and holding people to have more authority because they have a degree in a subject. But man's most authoritative, educated men and man's most prestigious degrees falls infinitely short to the authority and power that the Word of God possesses. The Bible, the Word of God, has ultimate authority. When the human authorities disagree with it, the scientists, the psychologists, the philosophers, the doctors, we submit to the Word of God as our authority, not man. And the Word of God was exactly what came out of Jesus' mouth every time he spoke. Jesus' words were, were powerful and amazing. They were scripture. His words were, were living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut straight to the heart. They were convicting, they were mighty, they were authoritative, they were powerful. And everyone, everyone was in awe of his words. But the question still needs to be asked, and it needs to be asked for Luke, who's writing to Theophilus. Did Jesus have the authority to teach this way? Are Jesus' words authoritative? Should we listen to them as authoritative? And this is a question that Luke sets up in verse 32. They were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. Can Jesus back up his words? Can Jesus back up this authority he is claiming? And Luke answers this in a few short stories. It seems like these stories are just thrown in there. They're not. There's all types of stories about Jesus. And, the, 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 and Luke grabs as much as he can, but he writes the stories in a specific way to, to teach something about Jesus. And so he grabs these stories and puts them together, if you look at the end of uh, uh, Luke 4, to tell you something. Before we jump into to the stories, I want you to see this common thread. Luke is helping you see why he's written about, these are true stories, but why he's written them here and, and, and in this passage right here. Uh, he's talking about words. Look at verse 35 in the first story. But Jesus rebuked him. He used words. Verse 39 in the second story. He stood over her and rebuked, used words, the fever. And in the third story, verse 41, but he rebuked them, used words. He, he uses this word. He repeats the word rebuke to help keep the reader focused. These stories are about Jesus' authority and power exercised by his word. There's three points I want to go over today. The first one is Jesus' word has authority over the spiritual realm, the non-physical realm. Second one is Jesus' word has authority over the physical realm. The third one is Jesus' word has authority and it was put on display for everyone to see. So Jesus' word has authority over the spiritual realm. That's where we're going to start. 
And people get so sidetracked on this passage and passages like this one. And the focus becomes demonization or, or demon possession. And they miss the main point. Luke's purpose in writing this is, is extremely clear. It's to show that Jesus has complete authority over the spiritual realm. That's the purpose. It's not to sh- give us a model of how to deal with demons. The context here is Jesus teaching with authority, verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What is going on here? Ha, that word, usually is untranslated. English just doesn't have a good translation for it, but, but it brings a lot of meaning. It shows that this, this demon was surprised, shocked, fearful, and angry. This demon was in a state of shock and terror. Why? Well, what scared him? Well, verse 31, and he was teaching them. The Greek construction here is a continuous. It was in the middle of his teaching when this demon cries out in terror. Jesus' words terrified this demon. What was Jesus teaching? Well, if you go to verse 18 and 19 in, the, in Nazareth at the synagogue, he was proclaiming the good news, the gospel. If you go to verse 43, you see Jesus say, I must preach the good news. I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God in other towns as well, like I did in this town. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was preaching the gospel message, and the demon screamed out in the middle of it. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? The gospel message shocked this demon out of hiding. It's clear that there's just one demon here. Verse 33 says, a a demon. But he uses the plural pronoun, us. Probably referring to the satanic kingdom as a whole. Have you come to destroy us? The whole kingdom. Is this the time when you're going to destroy all of us? And I want you to take note of the word holy. The demon screams out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Cries out, the Holy One of God. Why? Well, here's the nature of holiness. The nature of holiness destroys evil. This is why sinful man, every time God reveals a little bit of his holiness in front of sinful man, man falls down in fear because we're sinful Therefore, this demon was terrified because he was a spiritual manifestation of pure evil. He was terrified of being destroyed by Jesus' holiness. Look, demons are terrified. I hope you guys realize this. Every picture of a demon we have in Scripture, they're terrified, they're scared. James 2.19, we all know this one. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, tremble in terror. They know their fate. This is why they scream, have you come to destroy us? Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him using words 
And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. You know, there's a couple of things that happens to you when you were saved or when you were saved. And if you're not saved, this hasn't happened to you yet in this room. One of them, uh, before you put faith in Christ, God brings life to you. He gives you spiritual life. He regenerates your, your deadness to life. And that's where we get the born-again Christian. You're born again into spiritual life. Another thing, and this is what we think of mostly when we hear about the gospel message and the good news, is that your sins are forgiven. As soon as you put faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Far as the east is from the west, all placed on Jesus' back, paid for. You're adopted into God's family. As soon as you put faith in Christ, you become a part of God's family and get the privilege of calling God Abba, Father. You become part of the church body, if you like it or not. You can't be saved and not be a part of the church. You become a part of the body of Christ, which is the church. But also, you were delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God. I'm going to say something that probably goes against your first thought. I would say the majority of us in here. This man, and I, I, I just, it, this hit me as I was reading this, this passage this week, so I learned this this week. This man was not delivered. This was no, there was no deliverance in this passage. I think this word deliverance has been hijacked, hijacked by Hollywood in the horror film industry. That we think deliverance is a demon getting cast out of someone. That's not deliverance. Deliverance only happens when one is saved from the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1.13 makes this clear. He has delivered us. It's a biblical word. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. When does that happen? Salvation. This man in this passage was demonized or demon-possessed, and then he wasn't. The demon was cast out by the power of Jesus' words. But the man was still in the kingdom of darkness. Unless or until he puts his faith and trust in Christ. And there's no evidence of that. I mean, Jesus healed hundreds and cast out demons everywhere. And there was only a few disciples when he went to the cross and after the cross. Doesn't mean everyone was saved that he did this to. Just means a demon was there and it's gone. Because of Jesus' word and his power and authority. Deliverance happens in salvation. When you are delivered from the dominion of darkness and transformed, or transferred to the kingdom of God. And when does this happen? Salvation. We were all delivered, those that are saved in here, from the dominion of Satan. What is the dominion of Satan? Look, the dominion of Satan is not demon possession. Demon possession is actually extremely rare. You look at the whole Old Testament. And, and I would argue there's not one place where there's demon possession. Maybe you could argue one or two places. The whole thousands of years, not recorded once. Only non-believers can be demon-possessed. 
but all non-believers are under the dominion of Satan. What's that mean? Well, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 gives us the clearest picture. Just listen to this. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you were dead, spiritually dead, in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. You were alive in the flesh. You were born to the flesh, but you were spiritually dead. That's why you need to be born again. Following the course of this world. And who is the God of this world? According to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan. Following the prince of power of the air. The prince is Satan. He was our king. We were his followers. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Not just Satan's followers. Not just Satan's subjects. We were Satan's sons. 1 John 3.10, John 8.44, Acts 13.10 makes this extremely clear. Among whom we all once live in the passion of our flesh. This was not against our will. We weren't helpless victims of Satan and his regimes. We followed him because of the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and mind. Ephesians 2, 3 says, willing participants of Satan's kingdom. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Everyone that is not saved. Hopeless, doomed, destined for destruction. Without the gospel, without the good news, without salvation. Therefore, how do we deliver people from the kingdom of darkness? The gospel. That's what these boxes are all about. The gospel. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. It's exactly what Jesus came to do, to proclaim the gospel. Casting out demons and the healings were, were testifying to, to the, the gospel. I want to be honest here. The whole demon deliverance movement that's seen in the charismatic and Pentecostal churches has been a distraction for where true salvation and true deliverance is found, and that's the gospel. Cast out a demon, that person is still in the dominion of darkness. I don't want to get too sidetracked. Brent is going to cover this as we go through the book of Luke. But the purpose of this story, why Luke wrote this, it's clear to see the power of Jesus' words. The power of Jesus' words. He rebukes a demon with a word, and the demon is terrified and is gone and listens. Verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? What is this logos? The crowd gets it. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. The crowd's conclusion, what is this word? Authority and power in this word. Amazement at Jesus' word. Complete power and authority. They didn't say, oh, hey, look, this is a model of how we deal with demons today. They're amazed at Jesus. 
Verse 37, and the reports about him went out to every place in the surrounding region and probably got to Theophilus. Power and authority over the spiritual realm. Exercised by a word. He rebuked the demon, the demon's gone. Jesus' words are powerful. That's the point. And it gives us our point too. Jesus' word has authority, not just over the spiritual realm, but over the physical realm. Verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appeared to him on, on her behalf. So this is Simon Peter, and he has a mother-in-law. Um, I think it's First or Second Corinthians. It's very clear that Simon is married. Luke adds in this story, the Gospels, um, the Synoptic Gospels uh, uh, talk about the story too, but Luke adds the phrase high fever. Being a doctor, Luke a physician, throughout the book of Luke is interested in the physical aspects of the, the body, as, as you'll see as we go through the book of Luke. And he adds, this he says this is not just any fever, this is a high fever. This is a life-threatening fever. And at this point, even though it's not recorded in Luke, Jesus has done healings. And Simon and his family appealed to, to him on her behalf, say, come heal my mother-in-law. Come heal Jesus. So Jesus went in verse 39, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Amazing. Amazing. And I want you to see the focus. Luke, here, he gets it. The focus is Jesus' words. He rebuked the fever, just like he rebuked the demon. Authority over the spiritual realm, but also authority over the physical realm, a physical body. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Immediately. This is Dr. Luke again, interested in the physical body. A complete and immediate healing. Immediately, she got up and had the strength to serve them dinner. Complete. And characterizes Jesus' healings. Instantaneous, complete, visible. In front of people. Completely different than the so-called faith healers of today. Why did Jesus heal? It's a question we should ask. Why did Jesus heal? Listen, healing was a testimony to Jesus' authority. And I don't want to preach Brent's sermon that's coming up too soon, but turn to Luke 5, 18 through 26, and it's as clear as can be here. Verse 18 says in Luke 5, And behold... Some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him down before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowds, they went to the top of the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles um, into the midst of before Jesus. This paralyzed man sitting right in front of Jesus. And this is what Jesus says, verse 20 in. And when he saw their faith, he said... Guy that's paralyzed. Man, your sins are forgiven you. It's easy to say that. That's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees, verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this one who speaks, or who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God has the authority to forgive sins. 
Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Verse 24, but that you may know, here's why I'm going to heal this guy, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, Dr. Luke again, immediately, he rose up before them and picked up a guy that, that probably hasn't walked for a long time or ever, has the strength now in his legs to pick up his bed, pick up what he was, what had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen an extraordinary things today. Jesus' healings testified to his authority. Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and he rebuked the fever, and it was gone. Side note, uh, does God heal today? Does God heal today? Yes, through prayer. This is extremely different than how Jesus healed. When you pray, you are, you are going to God who's in authority and asking him to use that authority to heal. Jesus healed on his own authority. Jesus rebuked the fever and it was gone. He didn't pray to God, the Father, saying, hey, would you please heal this person for me? His authority came, rebuked it. And the, the apostles, the same authority, rebuked because Jesus passed that authority to the apostles who are writing the word of God. And their words are just as authoritative as Jesus. And how do we know they're just as authoritative? Because they said, be healed, and they're healed. Jesus' words has authority over the spiritual realm. Jesus' words has authority over the physical realm. And these, these, these miracles weren't done in isolation. Third point, Jesus' word has authority, and it was put on display for everyone to see. Look at verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, okay, this is the Sabbath day, it was clear earlier, and, and, and the Sabbath day is over when the sun sets. And people were not permitted to travel, people were not permitted to carry anything, so they couldn't carry the sick to Jesus until the Sabbath day was over. So they eagerly were waiting for the Sabbath day to be over, and as soon as it was over, they brought everyone that was sick. Now when, the Sabbath, or now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick, all who were sick, all who were sick, this is before modern medicine, hundreds of sick people coming to Jesus, all who were sick. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hand on every one of them and healed them. Specific language. He healed every single one of them, all who were sick in this town. Jesus wiped out this disease and sickness from this area. Everyone was healed immediately, completely. This would be like if someone went to San Joaquin Hospital and healed everyone and put the hospital out of business. You laugh, but people are claiming to have the same gift of healing. If someone claims that, tell them to go to the hospital and heal the whole hospital before you believe them. This is crazy. 
Old Testament, there's about 20 healings. Whole Old Testament. Thousands and thousands of years recorded about 20 healings. Only 20 healings. One night, hundreds. Wipe out sickness from everyone. Visible for everyone to see. Verse 41. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Demons also came out of many. Right? There's no, or possibly one or two, I think there's no demon possession in the Old Testament at all. At best, one or two, maybe. Gospel, there's demons everywhere. Well, what happened? The question we should be asking, well, what's going on here? Here's my guesses. I have two guesses. One, God allowed, and I, listen to that. God allowed. Because it's clear throughout the whole Bible that Satan and his demons cannot do anything without God's permission. Read Job. God allowed a full attack by Satan and his demons during the time of Jesus so that Jesus could show his power and authority to the generations to come. It's the first thing. I think God allowed this for a purpose. Second, Jesus' presence just scared demons out of hiding. They couldn't handle it. Terrified of them. And Jesus rebuked them with a word and said, silence. The whole army of Satan, completely under Jesus' authority. Leave. Quiet. Don't speak anymore. Jesus has complete authority and power over the spiritual realm. Angels, demons alike. Jesus also has complete authority and power over the physical realm. And he exercised this as authority through speaking. Turn real quick with me to, to Mark 4, verse 35. Verse 35, Mark 4 says this, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowds, they took him with them in the boat, um, just as he was, and other boats uh, were with him. And a great windstorm arose. Matthew uh, uses the word uh, seismic. It's a Greek word that we get the word seismic from to describe this windstorm. It was an earthquake-like windstorm. It was, it was a massive, enormous windstorm. And these are a bunch of fishermen that know what a big windstorm is like. This storm is life-threatening. They were not going to live through this. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat already was filling. And he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. How are you to be asleep through an earthquake-like storm? I, I have two, two things, I think, here. This was me guessing. One is Jesus in his humanity used every ounce of his humanity to proclaim the gospel and to minister to the people around him. Every ounce so that when he slept, he slept. And secondarily, he had the peace that... that we all know that when we 
are in the right standing with the Lord and, and, and things are going good. We sleep well, but when we're in sin, we just can't sleep. Jesus was out. And they woke him and said, teacher, do you, do you not care? We are perishing. Do you, not, do you not love us? This is what they're saying. We know you have the power to stop this. Do, do you not care? They were scared, fearful. They knew that they were going to die. This storm was too big for this little boat. And he, being Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Not just a calm, a great calm. There was no more wind, there was no more storm, there was just glass. No more waves. And he said to them, why, do you, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were feel, fear, or filled with great fear. Some translations say they're fear, they feared exceedingly. Yeah, they're afraid of the storm, but there's, there was nothing like the fear that they had at this point with, with God's word and, and, and the power and the authority that Jesus had. The disciples were more scared of the power and authority of Jesus' word than the life-threatening, earthquake-like storm. Terrified, they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Jesus' words are powerful. Now turn to Hebrews 1.1 for me. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to, to our fathers by the, the prophets. This is the Old Testament. Saying in, in the Old Testament, God spoke in many different ways, through dreams, through prophets, in many different times. But in these last days, the New Testament, the church age, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. How did he create all things, Jesus? By the power and authority of his word. Let there be light. Let there be earth. Let there be mountains. Let there be animals. Let there be water and fish and whales. Let there be the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the galaxies, one word. He is, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe. Colossians 1.17 says, in him all things hold together. The universe is, would fall apart, it would implode if Jesus took a break. If he took a day off, if he took a second off, if he took a moment off, it would just implode. An atom in the furthest galaxy, in the furthest solar system, in the furthest planet would implode if Jesus took a break. And how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus exercise the, this ultimate authority? Verse 3, by the word of his power. 
Jesus' word was infinitely powerful and you're holding it in your hands right now. You know, I've heard people say, not very many, but a few, that you guys at Country Oaks focus too much on Scripture, focus too much on teaching, focus too much on preaching, focus too much on biblical counseling, focus too much on biblical theology, focus too much on biblical doctrine. Really? We do? Look, we focus on these things because God's word is powerful. And I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed of this. I have absolutely no authority whatsoever within myself. I mean, what would I say to you guys? What wisdom do I have? Have you guys raised me? My parents are in this room right now. But if I preach the word, if I teach God's word, if I counsel with God's word, authority and power. You ever wondered why we have such a big pulpit? You know, it's popular in most churches today. They've got rid of the pulpit and have the pastor sitting up here with, you know, a, a stool or something. And I'm not say anything bad about these other churches, but I've had people ask, why don't you guys get rid of this, this pulpit? Why do you have the, the, that old pulpit up there? It's huge. It symbolizes that God's word is the focus of this church. Pastor Andy had his dad, he told me, make this pulpit for him. God's word has authority, not me. If you go to the Puritan churches, we, in my seminary, they actually have a model of a, a beautiful Puritan church, and, and they, they do way more than a pulpit. I mean, they have the elevated high above everyone. And it's not the preacher that has the authority, it's the word. It's when the preacher preaches the word that there's authority and power. And ironically, the symbolize of getting rid of the pulpit is symbolized what's happened to a lot of our churches in America and Western civilization. That's why we have a big pulpit. But here's the deal. There is power and authority in God's word, but especially, especially if I preach the gospel. Especially if I preach the gospel. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. How powerful? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The authority and power of Jesus' words are found especially in the gospel. Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a, a desolate place. And the people sought him and came after him and would have, would have kept him from leaving. Of course they would have kept him there. I mean, just wiped out sickness. He healed the whole city. You don't want this guy to leave. He completely eradicated demon activity from the whole area. Verse 43, but he said to them, I must preach 
the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Why did Jesus cast out demons? Why did Jesus heal the sick? Why did Jesus walk on water and calm storms? Why did Jesus feed the 5,000? That you would know that, that he has all authority. Therefore, his words are true. Therefore, his words are authoritative. And therefore, his words are powerful. In particularly, the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Dear God Almighty, you are just that Almighty. Who are we? Finite humans, Lord that you would send your son to come down to speak to us authoritatively because he is God. And yet we still put him on the cross to kill him. We didn't like what he had to say. Who are we, Lord, that you would do that purposefully so that you could save a few? So you could, could save us from the dominion of darkness and transfer us to the, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. He can save us from the sins that we've committed, from our own passions, from our own desires, from our rebellion against you that we want to be the authority. We don't want you to be the authority. We do. We don't want to submit to your word. We don't want to submit to you. We want to submit to ourselves, and that's it. And you brought life to us so that we could see our folly. Well, who are we, Lord? Who am I to preach your word? Who are anyone to preach your word, Lord? Who are we as a congregation that, that are called to take the gospel message to this town of Tehachapi? We're no one. But your word is powerful. The gospel message is powerful, Lord. And I pray that we are not ashamed of it here at Country Oaks. That we boldly go into this town and proclaim it to our coworkers, to our friends, to our families. For it's where the power of salvation is, Lord. We don't save, we just deliver the message. You save. And we thank you for saving us, Lord. I pray if there's anyone that does not know you in this room, anyone that has not bent their knee and, and cried out to you for mercy in this room, Lord, that do not leave this place before they put their faith and trust in you, that your son died on the cross for our sins, Lord, and was raised on the third day in ultimate authority. Help us, Lord. In your son's name, amen.